0: Uh, you can go to First Corinthians chapter seven tonight because we are going to uh, uh, speak on what Paul says about singleness and marriage and when to get married and when to st- when to stay single. Uh, this is, of course, a uh, a pastoral letter, not simply because it's, uh, in fact, not because it's going to a pastor like the pastoral epistles. But I'm saying it's a pastoral letter in the sense that this is the pastor's heart coming at, flowing out onto these pages. As Paul was the one who, who uh, suffered in his planting of the church and is suffering in the persecution while he was preaching for them to become saved and form a church. Now, now that Paul has been a few years now displaced from them, he's been removed away from them, he's hearing and he's reading their letters of questions that they have and problems that are going on. And so Paul very pastorally and lovingly and helpfully and theologically is going to go through You guys can just take up the offering because I'm, I'm way off. The plane is in the air. It is not landing. Uh, so uh, these guys will take up your offering. Um, and so so he's answering and he's writing to them all of these very helpful things. And I think uh, if you were to just read through 1 Corinthians uh, and make a list of all the topics that he covers, you would have to see that this is just so, so practical to the Christian life, especially last week as we uh, saw uh, in the text and the answers around marriage and divorce and remarriage, what we see in Paul's writing is that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. He was the apostle who was mainly entrusted with taking the glorious gospel and shining the light to the nations. So his mission field was Gentile countries, whereas uh, Jesus obviously in his teaching and the other apostles mainly were within uh, the Jewish borders. And so what Paul was tasked with was not only widespread suffering, was not only more travel time and and, and frequent flyer points, but what Paul was tasked with was the difficult task of applying the, the gospel preached from the Old Testament, the gospel that came through the Jewish people, the gospel that came through the Jewish Messiah, and teaching how that applies and finds itself contextualized in Gentile cities. And Corinth is an example of how difficult that can be. Uh, because there are Jews still there, so it's a bit hard to, uh, whose, con- whose cultural rules should we follow? It's, it's difficult because of all of these new questions, you've got people coming out of a very pagan, uh, 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 worshipping in, in false religions or no religion at all. So you've got this very difficult situation that Paul just writes to and is explaining about. And tonight we are uh, cover we're, we're almost finished chapter 7. Last week, again, we looked at marriage and sex and remarriage and divorce. Now we're going to look at uh, 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 singleness and when to stay single and when to get married. If you're not already married, we're not Mormons. You just do that one at a time. And then next week, we're going to go back and look at the the verses that we've really skipped over in order to stay on topic, verses 17 through 24. But for tonight, can you uh, turn with me to chapter 7? And I'm going to read from verse 6 to uh, to 9, and then we'll skip over to verse 25. Now, Paul says this, As a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one to one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, that is the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those who had none, and those who mourn as those who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those who were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or engaged woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as a betrothed, he will do well. So, then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. May God bless his word being unpacked and read to us tonight as we sit under his authority in our lives. There is a notion in today's Church and world, but but especially uh, uh, you'll notice it in in the broader evangelical world, and the notion is this that singleness and marriage are equal goods. Uh, either one of them uh, is is equally fine, equally as productive for the kingdom, and is equally preferable for every Christian. Basically, uh, it. it it's fifty 50 we can nev- uh, there's no general rule it's 50 50 as to whether you or not you stay single or you get married um, sometimes people will say it's a sin to get married because you should have stayed single and often they say it's it's never a sin to remain single uh, this notion has come been inherited from us with some uh, uh, twisting and some uh, 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 permeation from the culture which is a largely whether you realize it or not we live in a feminist culture. You might say, no, I know that, fami- that feminist that's at, at work. She has wacky views, a very strange haircut. She dresses, you know, the way she dresses, uh, uh, you know, but I'm not like those, and the whole world isn't like that, obviously. It's not true. That there, there are some extremists out there, but our culture, as we live in it today, in the West, it is a feminist culture, one that uh, despises biblical womanhood, despises biblical marriage, And uh, and for that reason, we have to uh, realize that, like the Corinthians, you are going to undoubtedly be more affected by the culture than we realize. It it happens incidentally and accidentally, but it always happens. We need to be actively engaged in giving to ourselves biblical worldviews so that we can push against uh, the culture's teachings and speak to it a better word, a better gospel, and a better pattern for life. Uh, basically, a common misconception today is that if you're a weak whipped guy, you'll get married, she'll get you and you'll be stuck for life. And if you're a dependent, weak woman who needs a man, then you know you might get married too. but real strong women are independent. This, of course, both of those streams have come from a, a worldliness of femi- feminism that regards marriage as this prison, as this horrible degradation of a woman's life and calling. That, um, uh, uh, that, that if, if, if you have nothing to offer, then you should go get married because wives are basically maids and, uh, and, and sex slaves. This is what the feminist mindset has taught us. Well, I want <clears throat> to, before we jump into tonight's text in particular... I want to Give us some principles because it will be helpful in order to set the stage and the context into which Paul is speaking. If we simply read through First Corinthians 7, maybe even as you were hearing that, you you were as we read through it, you're like, it sounds like Paul's saying it's better, and he, he said it in different ways a few times, it's better to remain single. He'll say it later on. I prefer them to remain single, and so we might get this terrible notion that marriage is for the those who don't quite measure up to stay in single, and that singleness is for the real holy people. It's also, of course, uh, uh, imbalanced to view simply marriage is for the holy people, singleness is for the failures. We, we need to reject both of those and receive from the Lord a pattern around marriage and singleness that he would have us have. So here's the general foundation of how we should all think about marriage. In Genesis chapter one verse eighteen, God gave to mankind. <clears throat> God, <clears throat> God gave to mankind a pattern and a design in creation. So, verse eighteen of chapter one. Uh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, the chapter eighteen of cha- verse eighteen of chapter two says, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him." A helper, so that what we have here is this design of of creation that demands and expects companionship. God is saying that woven into the very uh, reality of the the man woman imago dei, both made in the image of God, yet complementarily. So so that the husband has things that still need a woman, and and the man and the woman has things that still need a, a man, and and they're brought together in this coalescence called marriage. God has put that into the design of our very being so that the general pattern is that we would marry, that we will find our uh, fullest expression of obedience to God's design in marriage. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 also speaks to this, uh, very frequently read at weddings, and it's very fitting. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will easily withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, of course, this gets into no exceptions. It's just talking about pattern the created pattern is that we are better when we are together god made man to have a woman and made woman for man now what we do see in genesis chapter 1 verse 28 so first of all companionship is the created pattern secondly though being fruitful and multiplying through procreation is the the create, is part of the creation mandate What we mean by creation mandate, sometimes this is called the dominion mandate, or the cultural mandate, or the creation covenant. There's different ways that people speak about this. I'm going to use it as the creation mandate. What we mean by that is that there is a command given by God in in the creation account that applies to Adam and Eve, and through them, all of their children. So that if you're a human who bears God's image tonight, by the looks of it, that's all of us. Then you fall under this mandate given by God to mankind. This is a mankind ordinance. And it says in verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing. It's mankind's job. Right? It, let me use some imagery. Picture the whole world as the temple of God, especially before the fall in Eden. The the whole world was this temple of God. And what do you do in temples? You fill it with images of that God. That's what God did. He made a perfect creation and put into it an image of himself. Not a statue, not an animal, not, 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 a, not a, creature, a a creature, crawling thing on the ground, but a living, breathing, reasonable, sexual, relational, loving human being. We bear his image. We are the sign that, that points to the glory of God in this temple of the world. Now, of course, the fall has messed things up, but it has not entirely removed the image of God or the mandate for us to fill the world with the glory of God, and the glory of God is human beings in the creation mandate. So, uh, uh, hanging over and applying to every part of humankind is the, the the order and the and the commandment to be fruitful, find yourself a wife or find yourself a husband, husband, make babies, and teach them how to grow up and do the same. Of course, there's more to it than just that, but that is the basis of it. We see this applied again in Genesis nine, verse one, to Noah after the flood. So, no, the fall did not remove this commandment. It's applied again then, and is uh, uh, the, the foundation of humankind. Our job is to continue to procreate to fill the world with those who bear God's image. So, the pattern of, of companionship, the creation mandate of of being fruitful and multiplying, and then we have the great commission. Matthew chapter 28 uh, records Jesus giving the Great Commission as that last Adam speaking over his disciples, and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what Jesus is doing here is not replacing the creation mandate, but adding a next layer onto what it means to be a human. Part of your bearing the image of God means filling the earth and subduing it, multiplying, uh, multi- uh, filling the earth, multiplying, and being blessed in that way. As a Christian, though, you have been redeemed to uh, not replace that. It's not that we don't get married and have kids now because we're in the, you know, uh, in the monastic order of the Catholic Church, and so we just work in the church. That's how you be a faithful Christian. No, God has redeemed that part of our life so, so that we are now making disciples of all the nations through our children first and through our life uh, bringing others, uh, not simply by, by having lots of babies, though that's great, but the second part of this commandment is, is making spiritual children, if you will, spiritually pro, uh, procreating so that we are filling the earth, not simply with image bearers, but those who bear the image of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in the gospel. So the creation mandate and the Great Commission go together, and the Great Commission now gives uh, uh, direction and substance to the creation mandate. We are to get married, have children, fill the world with many disciples, and disciple others to bring them into Christ's kingdom. All of that being true, the other thing that Christianity does or the gospel does to us in, the, uh, in Jesus establishing his kingdom is that he also holds lordship over every part of our lives, doesn't he? So that Jesus now, if, if, if something serves the kingdom of Jesus better than maybe my preferred way of doing life, I do what brings Jesus most glory, and I do what serves the kingdom best. That's my, my decision-making uh, 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 prism. We, we, we ask this question all the time. That, that there's something that is not necessarily sinful or unsinful. It's just a decision to make, A or B. We ask ourselves, what will give Jesus most glory? What will be most productive in the kingdom for his glory? And therefore, this applies to the question of singleness and marriage. And in that context, Paul writes this chapter. Should I stay single or should I be married is not the question in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, is not he's, Paul is not simply saying, is singleness or marriage better? In the Jewish, biblical, apostolic, gospel, Christian mindset, Marriage is the expected norm and direction and uh, and and overwhelming majority of every single person. So the assumption is, if you were to ask me today, should I get married? Probably, overwhelmingly, the answer will be yes. Unless, of course, God has given to you some uh, uh, overwhelming evidence that he desires the contrary, which we'll get into later. But overwhelmingly, yes, as a person created under the creation mandate and as a Christian in the Great Commission, the design for you will be to get married and have children and raise them in the fear of the Lord while fulfilling the Great Commission. I hope that that brings some level of encouragement to the singles tonight. You might have been single for two months or two years or seven years, however long it is. However long it is, it's felt like an eternity. But God's uh, encouragement tonight would be that the overwhelming majority of you will be married. He, he does have somebody out there. Maybe you've met them. Maybe you haven't met them yet. And they are, in God's sovereign will, going to come into your life in God's appointed time, make you very, very happy. They will not be your God. They will not be your Messiah. But they will make you a blessed husband or wife. I, I think you should expectantly look forward to that and pray for that. <clears throat> So the thesis tonight is, it's never a sin to get married, and it's sometimes a sin to stay single. It is never a sin to get married, though you could marry the wrong person, but it is sometimes a sin to stay single, and we're just going to punch right through. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 6. In light of all that he's just said about husbands and wives satisfying each other and loving one another in marriage, he then says, As a concession, not a command, I say this. So what he's about to say is not a blanket command, is not even a command at all. He said, it's not a command. This is like an exception, one little bracket that might be true for some of you. He says this, I would rather that you remained as I am. What does he mean as I am? He means single with a purpose. Single with a purpose. Paul was single because he had been called to such a dangerous mission field of planning churches city to city, nation by nation in the first century. There's some reason to believe that Paul was uh, divorced or either she divorced him, but that's a pretty uh, uh, skinny argument. I I rather think that he was probably a widower, that his wife had died at some point. It it would just be so strange for a man of his age as a Jew uh, in, in the time that he lived to not have had a wife. And and we see that he does not have a wife. So probably he's a widower and he did not remarry in order to stay fruitful on the mission that God had called for him. If he had taken a wife, he would not have been able to do what he did for the gospel. He was fleeing city to city, getting beaten up, getting chased. That was not a situation that you want to bring children up in, uh, you know, just living in a... a, in a combi and, and driving city to city under the the uh, the, the, the guise of, of 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 people who could not never be found by the government and, and whatnot. That wasn't gonna be fitting. So he remained single for the sake of the church. And that's what he means. He says Little small bracket, I would love, if not a command, but but if there was some of you who were so gifted and so called and enabled to give your life to the mission to such a degree that, that marriage was not possible, I, I wish that there was more of you doing that. I wish that the, the gospel was being and the Great Commission was being fulfilled at such a pace that more of you were giving up marriage in order to do this, but of course it's a concession. It's a wish, not a command. <laughs> He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He says, I, I, don't, I don't dispense the gifts of the Spirit. I, of course, Paul might have said, like every pastor, I wish 98% of you were gifted for missions and we could just send you out and see the world one. Of course, but I don't dispense those gifts. It's not me to call you to one life or another. I'm going to give principles and trust that the Lord will lead you. So, so that is his meaning. He understands that for those who are going to remain single, number one, it's for the mission. Number two, you have to be gifted in such a way. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? If you don't, you don't believe there's such a thing as a gift of singleness. That's not a gift. That's a curse. There is no such thing that God that, that I don't smile if God was to say to me, you'll be a virgin forever and God will, will protect you from the desire of companionship in marriage. If, if that to you, you should, that sounds like a curse. That's not a gift. That doesn't exist. He's lying. Then you, you don't have it. Uh, you should seek a wife or a husband. But, but if you hear that and you go, yeah, I, I feel somewhat of a spark there, a, a call to that, that I could walk in that, maybe, maybe you have that gift. And it comes with a particular empowerment, like all God's other gifts, a particular empowerment to live out that calling, which means sexual purity, a control over sexual lust. So he's saying, if you have the gift, I would love for you to be someone who is single, verse 8 so to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single like I am, with the purpose I am, with the same mindset I am single for. But, verse 9, and this is what, if if maybe if 20 people in the church got excited at that, yeah, you know what, Maybe maybe I'm just going to be like a missionary, serve Jesus, that's my calling. Verse 9 then wipes 90% of them back out, as it says. But, but, reminder, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is saying, I'm going to get on this a little bit later as well, that marriage is good and glorious and kingdom-minded. It is able to produce disciples and glorify God. And and there are some ways and some people who have been gifted to glorify God even more in a single lifestyle. But if that for you is poisoned at every juncture and is, is cursed with continual passions of lust and continual, uh, uh, an overbearing sense of desire to be with the opposite sex, then God has not gifted that and he has not given that calling. The calling and the gift go together. Let me repeat, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So many, not so many handfuls I've I've engaged with people young people say it's just better to be mission minded than than married you know I don't want to be worldly and and yet they're so frequently tempted by, by sexual sin and 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 the the attraction from the other other partner no, it's it's better to to cap explicit mission productivity if it means that your sexual desires are within the confines of heterosexual Christian covenanted marriage Paul lays that out so clearly and so we can go now to verse 25, he, he dealt there with, with the singles, the unmarried. Maybe you're widowed, maybe they've been divorced, maybe they're just young and not yet married. And now he's going again to talk to the same group in two parts. He will talk about widows later on, and now he's going to talk about those who are actually currently engaged. The biblical word is betrothed. <clears throat> so in verse 25, it says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So again, he's not saying this next section is not inspired by the Spirit. I don't have a commandment from the Lord. What he means is there is no explicit teaching from Jesus. Let me give my commendation, my apostolic suggestions, and you need to find yourself. He knows that there is just hundreds of questions that can be asked in these situations. So he's going to lay out principles and trust that the pastors and the praying people will be able to figure out and apply what it is that he gives. And so here is what Paul says. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, and we're going to come back to that because that is so important, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? This is what he's talking about in being engaged. Uh, often in our day, engagement is just kind of dating 2.0. It's really no more binding. It's just she was bugging me. I got her a ring or some other guy seemed interested. So I bought a ring and now she's, she's mine until I figure out whether or not I want to marry her. Uh, biblical times, and I think we need to restore this now, engagement is somewhat of a, a penciled in contract saying, I'm covenanting, I'm going to marry you. We are not yet married. Sex is not yet appropriate. Uh, but uh, uh, there is a there is a an agreement here, so that Paul views it as a, as a and this is the funny part a bondage. Are you chained to a wife? He basically says in a in a in a English translation. Are you bound to a wife? Yes. Do not seek to be free. Dang it. Funny language, we're talking about bondage and freedom. Don't seek freedom. Remain in your slavery. You bought the ring. No, but what he's really saying is, if you're engaged, remain engaged. he says, if you are free from a wife, do not seek a wife. If you're not engaged, do not seek one. This is his advice. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Again, he's bracketing this with, it's never a sin to be married. It's always glorious. It's always joyful. It's always great to join one another in one flesh. However, he says, in light of the present distress. Now, lots of ink has been spilled over what that means, commentators argue. But what it, what, what he's getting at is, and here's, here's my I believe, well-studied opinion, I, I come down on the, the majority of the commentators who say that by present distress, he's talking about a Corinthian current situation that is, in, that is uh, uh, making the, the living situation of all Christians and all those in the town quite difficult. This has other applications, but basically, in, in Corinthians in the first century, Right in the years that Paul is living there and writing there and talking to the Corinthian church, there is widespread famine and uh, grain shortages. They, they look back through the, the records and they see that the government had set up and, and allocated one dude. This is probably the most boring part of the sermon, just a little bracket. They had appointed one dude to be a, a, a delegator of grain in the town. What that tells us and what the writings had shown historically is they were so short on money, so short on food, they had somebody whose job it was to be the, the minister of grain supply. People were lining up for, uh, for like in socialist countries, lining up for bread and water, basically, because they were so poor. There was a gr- great difficulty. There was also some, uh, some revolts and riots that were uh, all over the Roman Empire from the Jews. There was an impending war coming in AD 66. Uh, All of these things and the the social uh, flow on from that suggests that Paul uh, uh, all of those things is what Paul is talking about when he says the present distress. Life is very difficult for you at the moment. In light of that, it is wise that if you are not engaged yet, do not seek one. You can see what he's thinking pastorally here. This is, again, he said, not a command, not a flat rule, but here's my suggestion. Life is difficult. Getting food for one person is difficult. Finding a job to supply for your needs is difficult. Finding a place to live for you alone is difficult, and it will get more difficult for Christians through persecution. Are you sure you want to, young men? Find a woman and bring her into your home so that she can stay at home, not work. You have to supply for two now and supply for whatever babies come. Is that what you want to do in this present situation? Paul advises not. He says, see this current distress as a situation, as a, as a very specific uh, season in history in which you can be particularly devoted to the Lord for his gospel and the mission. However, he says, if you are already engaged, consider that as a bondage, as a covenant, and join with her in marriage. Don't seek to be free. So that's what he's meaning here. This is, uh, this is applicable also to, to all sorts of different situations we might find in the, in the 21st century. You've got a missionary going to North Korea, sneaking in through the border, carrying illegal Christian scriptures. I'm, I'm going to say that the best guy to send is an unmarried guy who can who can run around without toddlers on his back and a pram, right? He's going to be the best guy to try and sneak under the snipers. Or you can imagine maybe in places like like Iran or communist China today, where where Christianity is is highly persecuted and it is very rare that you're going to be able to live an open lifestyle as a Christian. It is also probably permissible and advisable in Paul's Mind that they stay single uh, at least until something gives way, until there's some freedom. He's not making it a rule again. He'll say, Get married if you can't control it, but if you can, stay single so as to keep your head low. It might be said, so that you can avoid as much opposition as possible. So, again, in service to the kingdom, you sacrifice your own preferences and desires. Such a radical way to think about marriage in the mind of Paul. But this is the calling on every one of us. Look with me to verse 28. Uh, halfway through 28, he says, those who marry, I don't want to hear any loud amens from the gentleman here. Just control it. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. Very well control. And I would spare you that. What Paul is saying here, he's not degrading marriage. He's simply saying, and in this passage, the word worldly doesn't mean sinful, doesn't mean fleshly, doesn't mean evil. It means physical. You get married... You think it's this, it's this huge rainbow, you're gonna fly off on a unicorn together and land in a castle, and birds will help you dress in the morning. It'll, it'll be great. I'm telling you, there's anxieties. You roll over in the morning, it's no longer a princess looking at you. And, and, and women, it's the same. He, he seems so romantic, he seems so great and, and loving and, and all, and, and uh, uh, chauvinistic, uh, not chauvinistic, the other one, uh, chivalrous. And, and you go, wow, what an amazing man. And then you see him in the morning before he combed his hair and you see where he leaves his clothes, and you see how he eats and what he eats out of the bottom of the freezer because he can't be bothered cooking, men are animals. And so Paul is saying when, when you get married, it's, it's not the same amount of, of commitment even as dating, even as being engaged. That relationship of marriage takes time, it takes energy, it takes emotional energy, it takes planning, it takes money, it takes all of these resources and it's to the glory of God, no doubt. And everyone who is married uh, uh, in, a, in a blessed marriage in the Lord knows that it is a blessing unlike anything else. But like all blessings, it takes hard work. So Paul is saying there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of work that is tied to this. <clears throat> let's not get too bogged down. Uh, let's keep on going. He says, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. That The language in the Greek, what he's really saying is, Time is of the essence. Like you don't have the the forty-year plan that maybe Western twenty-first-century Christians can make. Like there's persecution, there's war coming, there's famine. Time is of the essence here. You don't have all the freedoms to make decisions as others might. Therefore, from now on, verse twenty-nine, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Not meaning live as a bachelor. Not meaning live as a bachelor. What he means is. If you are married, hold fast to that marriage, but don't hold it as your ultimate possession. This world is running short. You might die soon. You might be called to give your life for Christ soon. The war might take you. Who knows what's going to happen? He's saying, if you're married, enjoy it as a temporal gift. Do not make it your all. Do not make it your idol. He says, to those who uh, mourn as though they were not mourning, your emotional state and status, maybe you're mourning because you're single, your emotional state is not ultimate. It is only temporal. The kingdom is ultimate. Then he says, those who uh, uh, those who rejoice as those who are not rejoicing. Again, your emotional state is not the ultimate part of your life. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Again, your possessions are are good and vital and you can use them for the kingdom, but hold them loosely. God may call you to let go of them soon. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. All of these things, including marriage, are blessings, yet we need to hold them loosely if the situation and God's word calls us to let go of them. That's what he's saying. So from there, he then starts talking about uh, 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 the, the demanding nature of marriage. Read with me in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. This is this is true. If you're a, a young guy, we, we have some young guys in in ministry here or, or have in the in the past as well before they got married. And it's just, young guys, you can, you can ride them pretty hard into the ground because they, they don't have anyone to go home to. And they say, I'm pretty busy. Go, I bet you don't have a screaming toddler. That's right. Come back. You're going to volunteer for another ministry. You're going to stay late and pack up. You're going to be here early and serve. And you don't have anybody giving you a call asking, where? you are. It's an amazing blessing. Let me say this, young guys and young gals, it's an amazing freedom to be single. As a man who has been single and married, I thought I was busy and time poor when I was single. And then you get married and realize how how restrict, not, not in a terrible way, but how restricting on the schedule marriage is. You you have you need to be there for dinners to be together. You need to uh, spend time with one another. And that's all a blessing. It just means you're more time poor. That's all he's saying. Saying so if you're single, use this season and period as investments in the kingdom. You have so much time, you do not realize it. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Again, he's not denigrating the wife and she's some worldly pleasure. Worldly here is simply meaning physical necessities rather than kingdom building. And and his interests are divided. Again, not a terrible thing. It's just a matter of fact. Your energies, your times, your focus is divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Fully focused on Jesus, how to serve him, how to bless him, how to spread his kingdom. But can I just add in a little joke here? Some commentators use this next phrase as proof against the inerrancy of Scripture. I'll show you why. He says, But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And they say, if Paul, it's pretty evident Paul was married. If he was, he would not have made this mistake in saying that married women seek to please their husband. (laughs) So here, obviously, is is an error in the Bible because it's not true that uh, that married women seek to please their husband like this. They're not focused on it, so he's wrong. There you go. There goes inerrancy out the window. I laugh at that. These guys must have terrible marriages. Then here we go. Paul is saying that in an ideal sense and in the blessed marriage, You are seeking, wives, how you might benefit your husband, serve his calling from the Lord, be a helper to him, bear him children, raise them with him, bless him, and be his glory. So Paul is saying in verse 35, I'm speaking to benefit you. I'm not trying to restrain you, uh, uh, add uh, unnatural uh, bondages onto you. I'm trying to bless your life and help you live the life that is uh, uh, most kingdom-minded in devotion to the Lord which will be a blessing to you. Let me go very quickly through the next few verses because we are going long. If anyone thinks, verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his, in, his fiance, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, uh, determined this in his own heart, keep her as his betrothed, which means unmarried, I'll explain that in a bit, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. In the context of an engaged couple, Paul's saying, now maybe there's a guy out there who is really conflicted. Should I marry her? Should I stay single for the kingdom? I'm not sure what her desires are. I know I want to serve Jesus, and I can serve Jesus through marriage. I can serve Jesus single. I'm unsure but I don't want to do wrong by my fiancé. Paul makes a pretty clear uh, commandment to guys here in between the lines. You need to know what you want. You need to know how to get that done. You need to know a plan for your life, and you need to involve your girlfriend, fiancé in that. The guys have no business stringing girls along while they're still trying to figure out whether they're going to be single for life or not. Whether they have, will get a job or not, whether they're going to be a stay-at-home dad or a proper guy who goes to work or not, there is the guys need to know what they know the plan to marry, know the plan to get uh, for the wedding, know the plan where they're going to live, know the plan for their employment and children. That needs to be at the forefront of a guy's mind. That is not too much to ask a wonderful young Christian lady to have as a preference when she's dating a man. He should know what he wants to do. But Paul's speaking to the double-minded guy here and saying, "If you're going to stay single, but the preference is, if you're engaged, get married. If you're going to stay single, make sure it is because you are certain that you want to do this." He says that in verse seven. You're not controlled by other people's preferences. You've decided the Lord has called you to be single. You're not going to make her feel guilty for being less holy. You've just decided you are certain in your heart. And again sexual desire is not going to be your downfall. If that is possible, then he says, for you, the guy who is called and gifted to be single and only engaged, not yet married, for him it's better to remain single. If though you're engaged and you're not called in this direction, it's better to marry. I hope that this is so clear. And then he speaks of widows. This is quite a, uh, it could be, widows whose husband has died, and that, that is the censure, but much of this also applies to those who have been divorced after the, age, after the period in their life when they have had and raised children. He says this, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In other words, she must marry a Christian man. All of us need to marry Christians if we are Christians. He says, though, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. That's him kind of being sarcastic. Pastors can be sarcastic. It's fine. Uh, but, but what he's saying here is widows are, are, are a different category because they, if they have already had children, they've fulfilled that creation mandate to have children and rear them up in the fear of the Lord. Uh, if they um, have enough of an inheritance or enough money or an income, they may not need to remarry for the sake of, of that. Uh, really, the, if 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 you're protected, if you have provision, if you don't uh, particularly burn in lust, if you've already had your children and you have responsibilities and you're going to have grandkids soon, Paul is saying, really, it's going to be up to you. If you have been divorced or widowed, then then you may decide that for companionship, you really want a husband, and that is fine. But you, may, you need to feel no compulsion, though, to get married. You, you will in no way be a second-class Christian. You need to realize that this season, whether it will be married, or it will be single for a while, or it's single forever. I was—I uh, know somebody who was married in her nineties just two years ago. The most beautiful, uh, yeah. Anyway, married in her nineties. So who knows? I'm saying there's seasons, there's seasons. But use this time of your life for service to the kingdom, and do not waste the, because there is private sexual fulfillment that lessens the drive to marry. If all of these young Christians in the Christian world were actually staying pure, you would have a much lower average marriage age because they're, they're actually feeling the desire. I may not be able to afford a huge wedding. That's all right. I don't want to burn into more, uh, in more ways than one. I want to get married quickly. Also, porn has largely degraded people's view of marriage and sex. And for that reason, it's a, a cultural issue, but also in the church. Porn has degraded people's view of marriage, and therefore it's not highly sought after. Worldliness has put income, career, and huge expensive weddings above purity, marriage, and children. And lastly, I think one issue is because there are very few young men today who take the dominion or the creation mandate seriously and become the men they're commanded to be so that they can fulfill their calling of taking a wife, providing for her, raising kids, and going to war against the kingdom of darkness to the glory of Jesus. Very few men do that, so very few young women find themselves courted and pursued. So for the singles among us, I I, I pray that you would look towards the, the pattern of marriage as God's most probable uh, uh, solution and next step for you. But let us have this mindset in singleness where there is a lack of companionship and maybe you struggle with loneliness, belong to a loving and belonging community in a church. Maybe there is also uh, an, an idolizing of marriage or that partner that there's going to be a Prince Charming who will solve all of my problems. Have and harvest in yourself a deep reliance on Jesus as your only Savior and Lord. Nothing else will satisfy I would also suggest that befriend married people for advice and perspective so that you don't harbor this unbiblical uh, fairy tale view of marriage. As any, but, and yet you still realize in all of the dirt and grime, it is glorious. I would ask you to pray and pursue a spouse in submission to God. Don't be complacent, don't just guess it'll happen at some point. Pursue somebody who would love you and serve you well. And in the time that you have, serve God. Work hard so that you do not waste the single, this season of singleness. Maybe that will be helping a ministry at church, helping out single moms, doing whatever God has for you. In, in all of this, our, our ultimate hope and, and security is not, and, and I speak to what I know, there's a, there's a big range where we've been. Some divorced sinfully, some divorced as a victim, some widowed, some remarried widows. We're, we're right across the spectrum here in a handful of singles. God has, has called to each of us, knowing the situation we're coming from. And so that means where we have been sinned against, Jesus redeems us and redeems those hurts and painful failings against us to be for his glory. It also means that he is forgiven and paid for in the person of Jesus, on the cross, all of your sins, including sexual and relational. Praise God for that. And then he gives these callings to us as redeemed sinners who have placed our faith in Jesus. Let us not lose sight of, of and, and try and seek satisfaction in anything else or righteousness in any other state of being, but throw our trust, our faith, our souls, our entire lives on Jesus Christ alone. He is our Lord. He is the one who died and bled for us, that we can be redeemed. And he is the one that, that can lead us into a righteous, blessed life in all different seasons of marriage or singleness. So I pray that uh, tonight you would, you would uh, seek to be practical with this, ask lots of questions if you have them, but why don't you bow your heads and I will pray over us tonight. God, with so much to cover and so much unsaid, I pray that, like Paul said, that, that we can just trust to you that your spirit will be able to apply these principles to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that those who have still struggled to this day with hurt of divorce or abandonment or adultery or or the death of a loved one, uh, to those who have, in their own past, have committed sins of adultery or illegitimate divorce or abandonment or uh, uh, otherwise uh, uh, defaming the, the marriage covenant. I pray, God, that you would bring them into security and peace and comfort in Jesus Christ because in him they've repented of their sin In him, their sins are paid for and they are righteous in your eyes. Pray also, God, for the singles and the young people among us, that you would give to them a glorious desire for marriage as a way to show forth your glory and be blessed in so many ways. I pray that you would uh, bring in, in the future years plenty of marriages, lots of babies, all to the fulfilling of your commandment to be fruitful and multiply but that our marriages would be geared and focused and pointed in such a direction that we are using our marriage to produce disciples in the world around us. And Lord, I pray that all those who do not know Jesus, you would bring them to him tonight. You would bring them uh, with all their sin, bring them with all of their failures, have them to throw them all to Jesus, to rest solely on his finished work on the cross and to be made righteous, to be made one of us, the family of God and be forgiven of everything. We thank you, Jesus, that you died and you rose and you now speak to us and rule over us. And everybody said together, amen, amen.